I believe that we all are understanding that God is renewing our minds. We're really understanding that, that there is a renewing of the mind that is going on. And the reason is that a great deal more than we can even understand was lost during the fall. We have not begun to understand yet the the extent of what was lost during the fall. We just assume because all we know is what's what started at the fall and began to be progressively worse. That's all we know. The question is often asked, are the world, are the times worse now than, say, 50 years ago? Or is there just better reporting? Well, here's the thing. It may have been 50 years ago that these same things were in the world, but there's no way that they were as widespread in the world as they are now. See, it's widespread. The, the, the reason that people think, thought them strange then, when they, when they were reported, was because they weren't common. Yes, human nature since the fall has been corrupt, and human nature is capable of doing anything. But it used to be that at certain historical times, certain particular time periods, one thing was emphasized, and then another thing was emphasized, and another thing was emphasized. But all of these channels and rivulets are flowing into one major stream of corruption, where at the same time you have all these things. So, for example, Sodom and Gomorrah were known for one thing in the ancient world. But today, together with Sodom and Gomorrah, we have the sacrificing of children to various priestly ways of devouring them. Whereas, we, and at the same time, we have all of the, but it's, it's, it's things like casually divorcing. Because you just, you just kind of don't like one another anymore. You know, um, is the norm. You see? So, it's like all of these things from the fall are flowing into this river, have flowed into this river, and now we have this massive tide of everything that that was sin when the fall took place, but now has begun has become in a sense the whole mixture. And that's why and consistent with that is the fact that you are thought to be weird. If you're not like some aspect of this in the world presently. If the Lord did not renew our minds, we couldn't tell the difference. Just like the world cannot tell the difference. As far as the world is concerned, in all of this, preserve yourself if you can. Protect your interest if you can. 
Secure yourself if you can. Because if you don't, don't expect anyone else to. And then this is whether you're talking about husbands and wives, children and parents, business people and, you know, owners and employees, governments, law, military, all the systems. That's, that's, that's what we've come to be. And, and if, if this, in America actually, is one of the places yet where people tend to be more restrained if you can consider us restrained. Some of the things we're watching unfolding is in, in this, uh, in the, the war that's going on in the Middle East is the culture of the Arabic people being exposed. And right alongside that, we're understanding the rampant nature of homosexuality. That it is not this isn't just like a hidden incidental occurrence. This is structurally part of the culture and the lives of people in Islam. And especially Arabs. But this has always been that way. We're just, it's now come to the judgment of, of the Western world. And, you know, the, the poor treatment of women has been always so. You know, it's not, it's not like it's never been like this and suddenly it's now being reported. It was always so, but now it's, you know, it, the things that are hidden are being brought to the light and what we're seeing is how depraved and perverse the human nature is. Left unaffected by the things of the truth. Now, I'm not we didn't come on the cruise for us to make up sensational things. Part of this is to just look at where human beings are and why the hearts and minds of people are hardened against the things of God. It isn't just that people don't like to hear about God. It is that what happened in the fall has continued to aggressively oppose God. And it's not an accident that we are here. It's more like you have this seed, it's grown into a tree, and it's bearing this fruit. Apart from God, this is the fruit of man's determination to protect himself and to provide for himself. Because that was what was lost in the garden. What I'd, what I'd like to do now is to go back and look at, quite, quite literally, look at the genesis, the, the origin, the, the rule, the beginning of this sense of loss. But you know me well, and you know me well enough to know, if I don't know the answer to the issue, then I don't consider it a real point in pointing out to you that something is wrong. If there are no answers, then we let's just continue to sleep. Because to be awake about it really gets bizarre. But there are clear, definitive answers. But where these things will take us is exactly where God is going with us in the world today as his people. Now these things have been known, the things I'm saying, have been known in bits and pieces 
experientially and by revelation over time. But I think the difference in this time is that God is showing much more of the big picture. So, for example, we've always known that the things that I've described as wrong are wrong. But, and, and knowing they were wrong, our point of view then came to be, okay, how do we remedy these things? And we came up with all kinds of ways to remedy them, right? We say, you know, if, if homosexuality is wrong, let's just really, let's go to the law and see if we can legislate against it. Against it in, in, in terms of uh, employment practices, in terms of associational practices, and so on. Let's, let's do something about it. And, and even though we've known a thing to be wrong, our approach to remedying it has been just as wrong as the thing we're trying to remedy. And herein lies the difference between what we've known and done about what we've known and what God is showing us to do, or more particularly, what God is showing us that He's doing about remedying the thing that was wrong. See, and the point of this whole message and this, this series of messages is to get us farther and farther away from A, the belief that there is something we can do to remedy these things. And B, to get us to the point of looking to what God is doing. Okay, now, you see the difference? When you use the expression, what God is doing, it means that God is not unaware of these things being so, nor is he silent or absent from it, from the solutions. He is doing something about these things, and he would do it through us if we would seek him about it. And this is very much the idea of entering into what God is already doing about it. Okay? The mistake we have made, and, and, and really the heart of religion, is to take things that may be true, and even right, and then do something about it to produce a result that, that, that gives a big uh, approval mark to religion. You see? And by that it can say, all these things are wrong. This is what we're doing about it. Come join us in the doing of these things. And we've all, there aren't too many of us in here that are brand new models. We've been around for a while, most of us. And where we've come to is we know that these things that represent let's do this about it don't work. Somebody was telling me just yesterday about now the most recent flap in the Episcopal Church about electing a homosexual bishop. And his view was the average person isn't going to know the difference in the services. I mean, this is what we've done. That a person living a lifestyle that is opposed to God can practice religion in such a way that the adherents don't know the difference. My goodness. Where are we? Okay. I think that small meetings like these are going to characterize how God 
remedies the problem using us. The difference in this sort of a meeting and what we're used to in terms of going to church on Sundays is this. Going to church on Sundays is geared toward making converts. Making converts. The biblical practice is that of making disciples. There's an order of magnitude difference between making converts and making disciples. To make a convert, you simply have to come up with an idea that you can persuade somebody to follow. It's all you need to, in the generic sense of, of making a convert. All you have to do is convince somebody to agree with you. Now what if you're both, what if you're wrong? Then you're both wrong. Making a disciple, however, is more than, is vastly more than making a convert. Making a disciple means an investment of your life in another and allowing God over time to authenticate the truth that this investment is, to authenticate it by the result. Look at the difference between the model of making disciples and the model of making converts. The modern church, the model of the modern church is that of making converts. So people go everywhere to try to persuade somebody to be like them. Now, almost every major religious group experiences its moment in the sun and its decline. All of them do. And the worst of the lot are those that are based in one man. Because when that man begins to get old, not even that he dies, that man begins to get old and cannot run the race with the speed and the endurance that he used to as a young man, then he immediately, his work immediately begins to decline. I could mention names of people whose names were household names 30 years ago. And today, if we mention those names, you would say, oh yeah, I remember hearing about that name. Or the younger set would say, who? <laughs> All right. But the point is, when, when, and you can't remember what they said or did. But there was a man named Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago who made disciples. And a man named Paul 2,000 years ago who made disciples and taught others to make disciples. I think they're still around and I don't think many people have to say uh, who was, you know, Jesus? Who was Paul, they saw something. They saw that God intended to invest in the changing of people's lives. Not just to get people to agree with an intellectual idea. Now, when 
when we become converts, the only thing that's really important to us are the ideas to which we've been converted. Now, what if the truth is different than our converted ideas? The truth is different. We don't want to hear it. Doesn't matter what the truth is, we don't want to hear it because it is not consistent with our ideas. I mean, think about it. There are all kinds of churches presently who say, yeah, they're the gifts of the Spirit, but we don't want them here. We don't want them in this church. Now, what's wrong with this picture? There are, and you'll hear people say, these are true things, but you've got to be careful how you introduce them to our church. And people will actually say, I've had any number of pastors who've said to me, I really agreed they're apostles today, but our church government doesn't allow that. Now, what's wrong with this picture? It, to us, it seems in, incredulous that someone would admit that a thing is true, but doesn't want to go near it. I mean, I, this one, one pastor said, you know, it'll take years before I can persuade these people that these things are true because you just have to sneak up on them. You can't just come out and tell people these things are so. We'll just sneak up on them. And, and, and we'll, we'll get the ideas in there once we get established. When you admit that, you admit that the ideas that govern your life are more important than the truth. And we're losing traction. We're losing the, the basic understanding of what this is about. This life is an is a opportunity to pursue the truth. Now, the, the reason, of course, comes from the fact that in the fall, so much was lost that not only has, has been lost, our desire for the truth, what has also been lost has been our frame of reference for even understanding now what is true and what is not true. So people get comfortable with the things that are not true but familiar. If they're familiar, then at least when you hear them, you get the comfort of knowing, maybe I'm not wrong. So we have substituted the familiar for the truth, and considered the familiar also the same as the truth. Why is the familiar not commonly the truth? See, these, these are some things we've got to go back and, and look at. Why is it that the familiar is less commonly the truth than it is? For one thing, the renewing of your mind, when the Holy Spirit renews the mind, the purpose and the intent of the Spirit is to show you all things. Which means that there is going to be an unfolding of more and more and more and more. The new is not the familiar. 
But we've even def- developed a defense to the new as well. We say, well, you can't just be chasing after new stuff all the time. Okay? But, and there's some truth to that. Because it, merely because it's new doesn't necessarily mean it's any more the truth. Okay? The fact that it is new doesn't necessarily mean it's the truth. But, but the point that I'm pursuing is when we agree that the familiar alone is the truth, the very nature of the renewing of the mind is that it is meant to introduce the things that we have never known. Okay? So, it's, it has to be not only new, but there has to be a way for you to be able to bear witness with the new as being true. Okay? That, that it comes right down to that. Well, how? How? How is this actually to be so? This is what I want to... We, this is kind of a long introduction to this message on the seven spirits of God that I've been speaking about. Just to introduce the idea, some of you are quite familiar with this before, but just to introduce the idea of the seven spirits of God, look at the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 4. Revelation chapter 1, beginning at verse 4. See there? It says, To the seven churches of Asia, grace and peace to you, from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. Alright? Seven spirits before the throne. And then, in uh, chapter 3, chapter 4, I'm sorry, verse uh, 5, Revelation chapter 4, verse 5. Before the lamps, before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. All right? So twice there's a reference to the seven spirits of God. Now, this, this is a classic example of how we don't see and we don't hear and we don't understand. Because we, we will, these are things that have always been there, not things I've invented, put there. But because we have no familiarity with these things, we routinely dismiss them. Seven spirits of God. I mean, how can you get a hold of that? What are the seven spirits of God? We think there's only one spirit. How seven? That the reference of the, to the seven spirits are frequent in the scriptures. Now here is the place where they're listed one after the other. Revelation, excuse me, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1.
It says a shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. You, of course, recognize this. This shoot coming from the stump of Jesse is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? A shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. Jesse being David's father. So in the flesh, Jesus would come from the lineage of Jesse. From Je- And by the way, a stump, you get a stump when you cut the tree down. So it really is indicating that who he is is not because of Jesse. He's a shoot that's come out of a tree that's been cut down to a stump. It means that in the natural lineage, he's from Jesse, but he's very different from Jesse and from the natural lineage. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Hear the seven spirits of God. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Spirit of the Lord, that's the first. The spirit of wisdom, that's the second. And of understanding, that's the third. The spirit of counsel, that's the fourth. And of power, that's the fifth. The spirit of knowledge, that's the sixth. And the fear of the Lord, that's number seven. Seven spirits of God. Lordship, wisdom, understanding, counsel, power, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. The seven spirits of God. For those of you making notes, I'll walk through plainly or uh, slowly. The first of the seven spirits, the spirit of lordship, spirit of the Lord, will rest on him. The second, spirit of wisdom. The third, the spirit of understanding. The fourth, the spirit of counsel. The fifth, spirit of power. The sixth, the spirit of knowledge. The seventh, the fear of the Lord. Spirit of the fear of the Lord. I just want to show you something in the New Testament. That uh, tracks this. This is from the book of Colossians. I believe it's chapter 3. One second here. I was just looking it up. Um, It's where you will find references to knowledge. Here here it is. The first chapter of the book of Colossians. First chapter, Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 9. Paul is speaking and he says, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray that we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might, so that we may have great endurance and patience, and joyfully giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For He has rescued us from the domain of darkness, and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, 
in whom we have redemption, even the forgiveness of sins. There are references here to the same spirits, to the seven spirits of God. For example, right here is, uh, he prays for the knowledge of the Lord. Number one, knowledge, wisdom, understanding, power, and by implication, the fear of the Lord. And then in the very beginning, he talks about knowing the Lord. So, you will, this is one of a number of times and ways in the New Testament where you'll find running together in passages these very listings of the seven spirits of God. It's amazing. Once you see it, and that was something that Henry pointed out to me, once you see it, it's everywhere. And it recurs not only in the New Testament, but it recurs in the Old Testament as well. The seven spirits of God. Why are these the seven spirits of God? And what, what is implied? Or what is stated in this, the seven spirits of God? Lordship, counsel, knowledge, understanding, wisdom, power, and the fear of the Lord. What's this about? Is this just one of those usages of words in the, in the New Testament or in the Bible that's nice to know? Those are, these are powerful words. These are good words. These are words we should know about. No, it's not just that. When the fall took place, man lost all of these seven attributes. The difference between the creature following the fall and the new creation are these very things. The fallen has lost the right to rule in creation. One of the first things that God gave to man was the right to rule. He said, have dominion over it and subdue it it being the planet right remember that God said to Adam have dominion have lordship dominion dominus is the Latin word which means rule the one who rules is lord right God gave us the right to be in creation as the rulers. And he didn't retract the right to rule. We lost it and it remained lost to us in Adam. Because Adam gave it up. That's why God always refers to the sin of man as the consequence of Adam's, not Eve's, sin. Because Adam willingly and knowingly consented to the loss. Neither did he protect his wife, nor did he correct her. He agreed, and the loss came through Adam. This, coincidentally, is why Jesus did not have a father in Adam. That's why it was his mother who was human, but his father 
was God. Because if his father were Adam, then he'd have been born in the same sense of loss that everybody else has. That's why when Jesus lived on the earth, he didn't live in the loss of lordship through Adam. He lived in the right to rule that God always gave to man. So on the Sea of Galilee, on the Sea of Galilee, when the storm arose, some of you probably remember that great Rembrandt picture, the great Rembrandt painting of the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Incredible terror in the face of his disciples who were seasoned fishermen. These were not new guys on the sea. These weren't fellows from Lubbock <laughs> on the Galilee. This was, these were seasoned, this was where they made their living. Every day they went out, you know, except the Sabbath, if they were keepers of it. Every day they went out to try to get fish out of this lake. So when they were afraid and, and, and screaming about perishing, it was in the same storm in which Jesus was sleeping in the boat. Come on, I mean, you know. Because whatever was happening to them was also affecting Jesus. He was asleep and they were panicking. It wasn't like two parts, two different parts of the lake. It wasn't even like it was two different boats. That boat that was almost jackknifing with these guys, and they were panicking, had Jesus in the stern of it. So we sometimes forget this. Okay. So why was Jesus asleep in the same storm that caused these seasoned fishermen to fear for their lives? Why was he asleep? Because he had never consented to the loss of authority through Adam. Over the storm. He had never consented. God meant for man to live in creation. In a way that is very different. Than we now live. God meant for us to live in creation. As the rulers of creation. By the fall. We live in it. In a way of defending ourselves. From it. You need technology. If you're going to defend yourself against the storm. Or against creation. You have to have technology. If creation is your enemy. If you are the lord of it. Then creation itself is your technology. So if you need to get from here to there. It says and Philip was next found at the Zotus. Did he go on the wind? When Jesus wanted to get from one part of the Sea of Galilee, of the region of Galilee to another, and, they, and he wanted to go by the mountainous area of the horns of Hatin, where there was no road, how did he get there? He walked out on the, on the, he walked out on the main highway. There was the water. There was not a bump in the road. He could walk on it in the night. Without stubbing his toe. He walked on the water. Because you were meant to live in creation. In a way that is different. Than the fall. Created. 
By the way, just so that you can cue in the pieces. When we are born again, who is our father? When we're born again, we're born of, the, of our father God, and he gives us his spirit to, by whom we cry out. The first thing you do when you're born again, just like when in the natural you're born, the first thing you do is you cry. In the natural, when you when you just come out of your mother's womb, Nick didn't, so we spanked him and he, <laughs> and he cried. <laughs> Cameron always laughs at that. They had to spank Nick. <laughs> that was a big joke. That was, she had that one on him for most of his life. <laughs> the moment you are born again of the Spirit, what is your cry? I've, Wah, wah. <laughs> Abba, Father. That's why it says it like that. And by the Spirit we cry, Father, Father. Because we, we're newborn and we look upon God and we look just exactly like a newborn would cry out. We look upon God and cry out, Father, Father. That's why, that's why these things are put here. They're new, but the difference is in your spirit, when you hear them, you have the spirit of understanding. The Holy Spirit, who is resident in you, brings to you the character of God, which is a gift from God by the Holy Spirit, which is the gift of understanding. And it's why you know things that you've never known. It's why you actually know things that you've never studied. Because spirit of understanding is in you. And when you hear it, you know it. The, the word bears witness, but even if it is new, you don't gravitate toward it just because it's new. But you are able to apprehend it even if it is new because you've been given the spirit of understanding. That's the difference. See, we, we, we were there a while back. And as we come to this place in, in, in the message, I want to just tie it in. You're not just going after stuff because it's new, but because it is a re revelation by the Spirit, it will be new. How do you sort out the difference then? Well, you either have to have, everybody has what is called a paradigm, which is a way that you look at reality. If the paradigm is the paradigm of the old, when you hear the new, there's no way for it to be affirmed. Because the old, if that's the test by which you affirm things to be true, then that's what you're going to hear. Okay? And once you hear these things, and you affirm these things as true, by the standards of the old, then it doesn't matter what's new. You can't get it. It's not for you. On the other hand, if you're just a consumer of new stuff, it may actually mean that you're just, rebe you're just a rebel and a nonconformist. Well, how do you walk the line between being a rebel or nonconformist on the one hand or traditionalist on the other? Because these are the two paradigms for the world. The third way and the different way is you have been given by the Holy Spirit the spirit of understanding. And even if you haven't studied it before, once you hear it, 
It bears witness to your spirit and that's how you know. That's how you know. So the confirmation then of what is true is by the letter and the spirit. And this is why it is by the spirit. Because you've been given one of the seven attributes of the spirit which is the ability to understand. You see how this works? <coughs> Therefore, the seven spirits of God are the way that God retrofits the creation that became corrupted through the fall. The seven spirits represent God's way of retrofitting us, if you'll allow me to use a very modern technological term. God quite literally takes out your, your understanding of how you are to live in creation. He, if you can imagine these things as being like fuel cells in, 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 this, in this machinery that we are. Okay? And the fuel cell, the thing that powers us, how we, how we protect ourselves. That in, in, in the fallen state, its function is just to keep us going. God takes it out, sets it aside, and puts in an entirely different way of seeing yourself here. Instead of seeing yourself as one to survive the process, you're to see yourself as the one who has the right to rule in the process. So when Jesus stood up in the stern of the boat, the same boat that was bucking and pitching on the sea, and frightened his disciples out of their wits. When he stood up, he didn't greet the storm as an enemy. He spoke to it as the ruler. Peace. Be still. And he didn't say, if, if, it, if, if you have a mind to it. He spoke to it as you would a ruler speaking to a thing under your control. Because he was not to be found in Adam. He had never given up the right to rule. So when he stands up in that moment in time, he stands up as what he is. Rulership had never been lost to him, so he speaks to it and he says, Be still. Be still. What was the result? It says there was a great calm. That means there was not a breath of wind. If we were to look out here today and there was no wind on the sea, it'd be like being on a placid lake. It'd be like on a, well, there'd be no white caps for one. That's what happened. It just died. Every breath of wind says, I will obey you. Every breath of wind obeyed them. Because it was subject to him. We have been given the right to rule in creation by, by God. Through Adam we lost it. Through Christ we've been restored to it. Our problem is now we need to learn how to rule in creation. And the fullness of that rule will become obvious when the Lord returns. Because he will not live in creation as one subject to it. That's why the millennium will be such a time of great peace. Because the elements 
will respond to the ruler and those who rule and reign with him. And for this intervening time, we are learning how to be restored in the right to rule. Jerry, uh, Jerry Hill was telling us, he heard this message when I first spoke about the right to rule. He heard it in Lubbock. The next day, he said, I was just so excited because some brothers were going across a lake to visit a prison and the, the waves were eight to ten feet high and they were on a pontoon boat, which is not a place you want to be on a, on a pontoon boat with eight, eight to ten foot waves. This ship would be pitching if the waves were eight or ten feet. And he said when he heard it, great confidence rose up in him from down here to speak to the weather and to cause it to be still. I haven't heard the result of all of that, but I know I would have heard if the brothers had drowned. So <laughs> they made it. Yes. Praise the Lord. I mean, I, I was just, uh, a week ago I was in Albuquerque, and Mary Marr came to the meeting. So Mary Marr has become famous as the woman who heard my story about Rain Waite in Villahermosa. She was, he had come down to a meeting that Lucy was having of some ladies in Albuquerque. She was returning to Black Hawk, Colorado with her teenage daughter when they got to Castle Rock, starting the ascent to Denver and then beyond that to uh, Black Hawk. Fog was, low fog was down on I-25. And she was concerned. The roads were slick because there was snow. Snow and fog created dangerous setting. Mary Marr, who is Russ Marr's sister-in-law, or, or uh, yeah, sister-in-law, um, married to Joe, uh, his brother, uh, she was at the meeting. She, she had said, as she was going back, the Lord brought to her mind my, the story of Rain Waite, and she said, fog lift. Fog lifted. She drove all the way to Black Hawk. She was at the meeting I had a week ago in Albuquerque, and uh, when she came up to me, she said, you remember who I am? I said, yeah, I've been telling everybody about you. And she said, you have? I said, you remember the story of Foglet? She said, yeah, i got to tell you another one. She said, I was going somewhere, and uh, after that, she said, this is what I want to tell you. And it was just thick fog on the road. And I said, fog lift again, and it didn't lift. She said, but it was like the Lord, the Lord spoke to me and said, I will show you the white line through, through this, on this road and you keep on the, on the particular side. And she stayed on the side until the Lord, and she said as she drove on, the Lord showed her that it was important for her walk that she stay in the things God had shown her. And so when she got it, the fog lifted. So I've been waiting to tell you this. This is a week ago. That, so Mary Moore's story continued. <laughs> and she remembered fog lift. But this time, you know, and the reason I go on to tell you this is she's learning that God speaks to her. And God's using a, a familiar way that he spoke it. See, if, 
Now, if, if she hadn't learned that, if God hadn't begun to instruct her all the more, every fog that she would be in, the only response would have to be fog lift, and if it didn't lift, then she'd think she had backslidden. <laughs> you know? But God's using the thing to teach, and I want to update the story to show that it's not, you, you don't learn magical words. You learn to understand what God is doing, because the right to rule has to do with understanding what God is doing and declaring that. See? He'll, he'll meet us where we are. And it'll be rain, weight, and fog lift. Now, if God is not telling me to say to the weight, to the rain, weight, and I say rain, weight, I'm just going to get wet. You see? But if he's showing me that I can rule in certain situations to his glory, as I learn how to do that, then it will happen. Uh, Lauren was here. Uh, Lauren reminded me of a story down in Big Spring. And it was a, I was in Big Spring, and God had given a word to Big Spring that because they had repented, I think it was in the in the case of uh, Steve. You know, the matter with Steve that we handled, the one I put out and then came back. After that, there had been a drought in Big Spring for three years. We have some people here from Big Spring today. There has been a drought in Big Spring for three years. And it had over 300 consecutive days where it hadn't rained more than a half an inch at any one time. So it was serious drought. Well, after the full repentance had taken place and beautiful restoration had occurred, God said that because the hearts of the people were right, they wanted to know God. It was a hard thing for all of us. Everyone involved, it was hard. And But I'm convinced that the people had a heart for God. No matter whether they were directly affected or they just heard about it. The majority of people had a heart for God. And so at a certain point when that thing was had, had come full circle and God had restored, I was in Big Spring, and the Lord spoke that word that it was going to rain. And I said, I prophesied, Lauren was reminding me of this, that it was going to rain. And I said it was not going to rain it, it, it will rain not many days from now, so that no one will be able to say it was bound to rain eventually, and that it will rain in such a way that no one could doubt that this was the hand of the Lord. Okay, well, that's that, we said that this was like Monday night. I went home Tuesday morning. Lucy and I left for Denver on Wednesday, and were gone. Thursday, Friday, Saturday. When I came back, the machine was full of calls. One was from Stephen, and he said, Hey, buddy, it's raining. <laughs> it had rained something like eight inches in Big Spring, and it snowed 17 inches. And it was in April. And as, as People who have kept records said that it's never snowed in April, never snowed that late in the year, 
and it was the greatest snowfall on record. Well, see, the miraculous, the entire genre of the miraculous in Scripture has to do with the control of nature. The water into wine, that's the control of nature. Storm on the sea. And you have to understand now, the gift of working miracles, the, 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 the loaves and fish multiplied, the gift of working miracles is especially about the control of nature. Nature responding to the saints. In 1 Corinthians 12, there's a distinction between the gift of healing and the gift of miracles. We have lumped them together. So the only way we think about miracles is about healing. But I'm telling you what God wants to restore to the body and the heart of the reason for even going in this direction is to talk to you about what it says biblically, to give you illustrations from life, and to confirm and encourage you to walk in the miraculous. Lordship is about being given back the gift of miracles. This is what miracles are. Miracles are of this kind. The control of nature. Now, you can't just, you ought never, in the exercise of any gift, you ought never to go around just saying, wind stop blowing, rain stop falling, and so on. Okay? There's a greater purpose in God for miracles. Miracles were meant to confirm the word. So, if you're about the business of the Lord, and a miracle is necessary, then do a miracle. If the rain needs to wait, then let the rain wait. If the rain needs to fall to confirm people's hearts that turn toward God, then you declare it. You know, the funny thing is, and some of you who were in that meeting may remember, I heard myself say, just because you all have repented and the favor of the Lord has come back to this community, I'm prophesying to you it's going to rain and it's going to rain in not many days from now. When that word came out of my mouth, it was like I wanted to reach out and grab it and stuff it down my throat where it came from. Because I had no idea. When you have 300 consecutive days of no rain and three years of drought, you don't just walk up and say, and it's going to rain not many days from now. But instead of gathering it back and stuffing it back down my throat, I said, I added insult to injury, Terry. <laughs> I said, and it's going to rain in such a way that no one can doubt it was the hand of the Lord. What does that mean? <laughs> Half inch? <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, we were out there on the plank. If God did not show up, you know, what little reputation I had left <laughs> was going to be God's sound. And it snowed. Why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this because... This is your right. This is your inheritance. And it's been given back to you. 
in Jesus Christ, you've been restored in the right to rule. You're not in Adam anymore. You are in Christ, and one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit to you is the gift of understand, of, of, of lordship. Once you become aware of it, it's amazing how moments will occur when you too will walk in the miraculous. Because we have only seen healing as the miraculous. Now I admit to you that when somebody suddenly healed, that that is a miraculous occurrence. But because we've only thought about healing, of miracles in terms of healing, we have this mixed view about miracles. Because we all know somebody whom God chose not to heal. Not to physically heal. But instead, heal them permanently by taking them home. There's at least one time when you won't be healed. Thank God. Otherwise, we get to live to be very, very old here. And that's not how all of what God intended for us. Okay. So, understand that the miraculous is more than a miraculous healing. And step into this place of the miraculous. The miraculous is very much about the control of nature being restored to the saints. And the funny thing is, nature doesn't need faith. Nature just needs a command from the children of God. And again, all of these things work because it's what God is doing. So if you will hear what God is doing and declare it in nature, nature will respond to you the same way it responded to him. In fact, nature is so eager for this to happen that all of creation is waiting for this to happen. The restoration and the revelation of the sons of God. Because nature has it better when it's ruled over by the children of God than it's rule, when it's ruled over by the exploiters of it. Who would rule better? The children of God or the tree huggers? Who would rule better? The children of God or those who exploit nature with no thought about, about uh, its, its place in the order of things? Whether it's the tree huggers on the one hand or those who, who use nature without regard. In what condition would nature be if the children of God ruled over it in every way? Well, it will be in the way that it will be when the millennium comes. Because what makes the earth such a fabulous place in the millennium is when the true rulers have been restored. And nature wants that. See, even nature knows it has a purpose. And its purpose is to glorify God. And when the rulers of nature use nature in such a way that it does not glorify God, nature, though we are used to thinking of it as inanimate, the word says, and the trees of the field will clap their hands as he goes out with joy. And the wind and the sea obeyed him. That's what it says. I didn't put the word obey in there. It says, for the wind and the sea 
obeyed him. Whatever nature is, it's clearly not human. Whatever nature is, it's clearly not a person with a soul or with an ability to fellowship with God. Clearly is none of those things. But whatever nature is, it is clearly able to respond to God and the children of God. So it's not just about rocks and tides and winds. Right? Jesus one time spoke to a fig tree, cursed it, and it died, and it withered the next day. And the disciples saw it and said, wow, nature will respond to the children because God gave us the dominion to rule. One of the seven spirits of God is the spirit of lordship. And you live in creation differently if you're subject to it than if it is subject to you. You live in creation differently. If you're subject to it, then you are to defend yourself against it being what it is. If it is subject to you, it serves you. It it obeys your commands. We are meant to learn. That's a major thing that God's taken out of the fallen self, set it to one side, and he's restored in lordship. What else did he restore? How are we doing on time, Doug? Okay. Okay. All right, 15 for the tape. All right, now look at the next one. Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of wisdom. Now we've, we've spent quite a bit of time, thank you, spent quite a bit of time talking about the spirit of lordship. Now what about the spirit of wisdom? What about, how would we see life differently if we were endowed with the spirit of wisdom? In short, that fallen wisdom that governs how we are is taken out and God's wisdom is replaced. What, what is wisdom? How is wisdom different from knowledge and understanding? Wisdom is actually what you do about anything. What do you do about the thing? Wisdom presumes knowledge and understanding. But what you do about the thing is what constitutes wisdom. That's just a plain understanding of how wisdom functions. Doesn't God drive us nuts sometimes? We will pray fervently. We will think we've figured out the formula. For getting God to respond to us. And we'll roll out the formula. And it doesn't work. It dies. And then there are times. When we will just. Find ourselves casually thinking about something. Not even really asking God for it. And it will happen. How is the wisdom of God. How. How how does God know what to do about all things? And why is it that we don't seem to know what to do? 
He is God. That used to be a satisfying answer to me. We're never God. But here is the thing. Right here you just read, the spirit of, of wisdom will be upon him. Wisdom, and we read, in, we read in the reading from Colossians, that Paul prayed for them to have the wisdom of God. That's, I appreciate your response, because in some ways it highlights how, where we've been stuck. We have been stuck with the thought that you can't really ever accurately know what to do in every situation. And in fact, we are so vested in that point of view, we have no anticipation of knowing what to do. You see, here is the difference in the way wisdom begins with humans, and the way wisdom is with God. And by the way, one of the things God's told us we're free to ask for, and he will never reprove us for asking for it, and he'll give us without measure, one of those things is wisdom. Wisdom. If any man lacks wisdom, James says, let him ask the Lord, and the Lord will freely give him without measure. The problem is, if we're double-minded, we can't receive the wisdom we're asking for. What do I mean by double-minded? If we think the way the world thinks, and at the same time try to think the way God thinks, then whatever God gives us, we can't receive, because there's no place for it to rest. Let me explain a little bit about what a gift is. A gift has certain elements to it. Number one, the giver must intend to give. Okay? These seem almost too obvious to be noticeable. If you're going to make a gift, number one, the giver must have the intent to give it. Okay? Number two, the giver, having the intent to give it, must actually deliver and convey the thing. This very much shows whether the giver had the intent. So from the giver's standpoint, there are two things. And from the receiver's standpoint, there's one thing. And these three together make a gift. The giver must have the intent to give. And the giver must demonstrate that intent to give by actually conveying the thing. For there finally to be a gift, though, the receiver has to receive it and accept it. Those three things together, and you have a gift. There's never a problem with God having the intent to give us good things. Because it's his heart. And there's never a problem with God conveying these things to us. The problem is always with the state of mind of the recipients, namely us. That we don't believe it. And that's why the scriptures in James say, for a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Let not such a man think that he will receive, and the emphasis on the word, 
receive. See, the one thing we are meant to do in the giving process is to receive. Let not such a man think he can receive anything from the Lord. What then is the condition of a man who cannot receive from God? It's that he A, doesn't trust God, or B, he sees no value to the thing he's being given. These are the main problems with receiving wisdom. God intends to give us, told us it's his intention, and has conveyed to us as much wisdom on anything that we can hold. Our problem is we won't receive it because of how we think of wisdom. The way that a human thinks, and this is the difference between the way a human thinks about things and the way God thinks. A human thinks in a linear way. He can only go from what he is known to be true in the past and what he knows to be true in the present. He takes the past and the present, he overlays the past upon the present, and he guesses about the future. This is called the scientific method. And the scientific method has value when you're dealing with things that can be understood in a linear way. Okay? But that's all the value there is to the scientific method. How is the wisdom of God different from that? The wisdom of God is not linear. It is eternal. So it is not derived at through the process of observation, analysis, and synthesis. That's the way the scientific method works. You observe something, you analyze it, and you synthesize it, and then you postulate, then you hypothesize. That's all, that's human wisdom. And it applies whether you're talking about law, medicine, business, engineering, and so on and so on. Observation, you see it, you observe it, it reoccurs, you you analyze what you're seeing, looking for patterns, for example. You synthesize it, you put it together with other things like it, and then you hypothesize. You say, these things are generally true, therefore, this thing will be true. That's the scientific method, and it's purely linear. Now, the eternal knows the end of the thing from the beginning. It knows where it's going before it starts. Now, if you could get in on that stream of understanding, then you don't need linear thinking. You know where it's going before it starts. What would you do if for the next six weeks you knew how the stock market was going to behave every day? What would you do? How would you be thought of in the world? You'd be thought of as being better than the sage of Omaha. Right? You would be considered among the wisest of people who has ever lived, right? 
Yeah, because that's how people see wisdom. Being able to say before it happens how it's going to turn out. Jesus did this all the time. And that's because he exercised the wisdom that was not from beneath, from below. Because there's a wisdom from below and there's a wisdom from above. The wisdom from above is pure because it is not contaminated by human error and speculation. The wisdom from above is when God shows you the way things are before they occur. Or he allows you to look into the nature of things the way they actually are. This is what Paul said about it. This this is the actual passage just in, in the book of Philippians. This is what Paul says about wisdom. He says in Philippians 3, verse 7, But whatever was to my prophet, all the stuff he knew about religion, whatever was to my prophet, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have suffered the loss of all things. Consider them but rubbish, that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but the righteousness that is by through faith in Christ, righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ. All of us who are mature should have such a view of things. And if on some point we disagree, this too God will make plain to you. Only let us live up to the measure of what we have already obtained. Now, I'm going to wrap up this session on this note. I want to point out what it is Paul was speaking about and then we'll pursue wisdom as deeply as we pursued lordship. And you'll see where we are to go. In the construction here in the Greek where he says, I want to know the resurrection of the dead. He uses a term the, the normal term for resurrection in, in the scriptures, the Greek term is anastasis. Quite literally, out of a stasis. But he uses the term ek anastasis. Ek. 
you're familiar with the word ek in the word ek plesia. Ek is out. Plesia is called. Anastasis is resurrection. Ek anastasis is out resurrection. What he's saying is the resurrection that I left all my religious stuff for is this. That I can sit where God is sitting on the throne and look at myself and the rest of us in creation while we're still here. In other words, I want a point of view on my life and on this whole life, I want a point of view that comes from being seated on the throne. Wow. Now that is wisdom. I want to be seated on the throne when I look on my life while I'm living it. He said, I haven't attained it yet. But that's what I want. Ek Anastasis. Brothers, this is wisdom. Brothers and sisters, this is what true wisdom is. To look from God's point of view on our present events. Seeing each other no longer according to the flesh, but seeing each other the way God sees us. I mean, if we did, if we could have done this while we were raising our kids, how would we have raised them? If we could have seen them the way that God showed Mary. You see, God showed Mary who this child was going to be. And she kept these things in her heart. So that when he would die on the cross, she wouldn't be totally without hope. We're about to open up wisdom. Of one of the seven spirits of God. We're about to open up wisdom. The next time around we'll open it up. We want to look at things from God's point of view. And it'll affect everything you think about. Okay. Well, thank you for being here and we'll continue the next time.